0: we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, we're going to look at TULIP again today, and we're going backwards this time. Okay? Uh, As I told you before, the foundation of TULIP, let me just write it on the board here, T-U-L-I-P, the foundation for the whole thing, all of TULIP, is T. That's why it begins with T. Okay? It's the foundation of the whole thing. So, I'm going back in time, we went through T uh, once already, but I don't think I covered it thoroughly enough. So we're going to discuss it again today, and I've added a lot of things to it. So it may take a little while today, but uh, you know, strap in your seatbelts, be ready to go, we're going to you know, dive into the Word of God, engage your minds, and understand what the Bible says about T, and if T really is biblical or not. And, and i got to tell you before, if any one of these letters fall, the whole thing falls apart. It collapses. You know, we're out witnessing with someone, we, we take them through the law, and we may say, well, if you sinned at one point, you've broken the whole thing. If one, of these t- if one of these letters is broken, the whole thing's broken apart. falls apart. They all stand and fall together. So when, if, if someone used to, uh, is like I used to be, I used to basically believe in P towards the end. I believed in T a little bit. Didn't really understand what it meant for a while. But when I believed in P, I was inconsistent. Okay? So if, if someone just chooses to believe in one of these letters, but not the other ones, they're being inconsistent, to say the least. They need to really see it if what they believe the word of God says it, okay? But T, what, what does T stand for? Children, go ahead and say it out loud. Total, total depravity. Total depravity. That's right. Write that on the board. And total depravity. Another name for total depravity is total inability. That's right. Total inability. So total depravity or inability. Okay. And basically, what the this Calvinistic doctrine is saying, uh, and really I should call it an Augustinian doctrine. That's really where it started is that every sinner every sinner has no ability to repent no ability to trust in jesus and i'll tell you this to, to a certain certain degree that may be right but the problem with that is that god has given all men all sinners the gift of free will so if god didn't give us that gift then they'd be right we wouldn't have the ability to to repent or trust in jesus but god has given us the gift of free will not only that the bible says that we've seen already we looked at I, uh, that God is, the Holy Spirit is convicting all men, the whole world, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We also looked at John 12, 32, which says that, that the Holy Spirit, since Christ has been lifted up from the cross, the Holy Spirit strong drawing all men near. Okay, so there's no excuse. You know, a man, a no, no man will be able to stand before God on the day of Jonah and say, God, you didn't give me the ability to repent. You didn't give me the ability to trust in you. No man will be able to say that. They will have no excuse before God. But what this doctrine does, it gives men an excuse before God. Now let me give you a hypothetical uh, th- throne, you know, judgment seat uh, situation. There's a lost sinner, he stands before God, and this is a Calvinistic God, by the way. Stand before God, and, and God says, well, well, sinner, why didn't you repent and trust in me? And he says, well, well, God, I had no ability to repent, I had no ability to trust. You made me a sinner because Adam sinned, and therefore I'm going to hell. So he really, he has, has an opportunity to blame it on God, first of all, and second of all, to blame it on Adam and Eve. It's the same thing that happened in the garden, right? Adam blamed it on Eve. Eve blamed it on the serpent, and that was it. Okay, but when you stand before God on Judgment Day, none of us will have an excuse. No lost sinner will have an excuse before God. Okay, Um, but this this doctrine of total depravity or total inability is very directly tied into the idea of original sin. I'll write that on the board for you. Okay, anytime you're speaking about total depravity or total inability it really ties very closely into original sin. Now let me give you from the horse's mouth, okay, the Calvinists themselves, what original sin is. Okay, this is this something taken right from them. Number one, the whole human race sinned in Adam when he sinned. Adam's will was the will of the whole race, so that all men sinned in Adam and rebelled with him when he sinned. Okay, number two, when Adam sinned, human nature was corrupted so that all men are born with a sinful nature, okay? Number three, this sinful nature is the fountain and direct cause of all of man's sins. Man sins by nature and cannot help but sin, okay? Number four, because of Adam's transgression, all men are guilty, because of what Adam did, all men are guilty and are under the just wrath and curse of God and are liable to the pains of hell forever. Now, let me just say this right off the bat, right? just with that number four. That, that right there totally contradicts the word of God. It says that because of Adam's transgression, all men are guilty. But the Bible says you will not be guilty for any other man's sins. You'll be guilty for your own sins in the day of judgment. And it says they're under the just wrath of God. But God himself says in the word that that's not just. So if, if that is true, then God himself is being unjust. God himself is being unjust. But, but God says that if you, if you hold someone else accountable in eternity... For someone else's sins, that is unjust. Number five, this is the last one. Even newborn babies open their eyes in this world under the wrath and curse of God. They are guilty and condemned from the moment of their birth. That's what original sin teaches. And in my eyes, this is blasphemy. Okay? It maligns the character of God. This is not biblical. And what we're going to see today is it's not biblical at all. We're going to see there's so many verses that refute this, it's not even funny. But let me give you a brief history of where this whole thing started. Okay, Let's just turn to 1 John, chapter 4. I'll give you an idea of where this whole thing started. Now, in, in the early church days, they were fighting off a lot of heresy, right from the start. And there was this group of people called the Gnostics. Okay, I'll write that on the board for you. It's not spelled the way it sounds. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. Gnostics. Okay. And you see all throughout the Bible, if you know about the background and the history of, of what these people are going through, they were fighting off heresy left and right. One of the groups they were fighting was Gnostics. Another group was the Judaizers. But what we're going to focus on today is the Gnostics. Gnostics, let's turn to 1 John chapter 4, and look at verse 2 and 3. This is John the Apostle speaking here, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. See, the the Gnostics believe that the flesh, your, your skin, what you're in right now, your body, was inherently depraved or evil. And because all men were in the flesh, this body ran, we had to do evil. That's what the Gnostics taught and believed. Therefore, because, that, because they believed that first initial thing, they had to deny that Christ actually came in the flesh. In fact, they would say that it just looked like he was in the flesh, but he really wasn't in the flesh. would even go as far to say he wasn't really the person who died on the cross. He couldn't have died on the cross. He wasn't in the flesh. And these are some of the Gnostic heresies that the apostles were fighting during those days. And Augustine... uh, I think, who is the founder of total depravity, total inability, this doctrine of of tea and tulip, he's the one who brought this Gnostic stuff into the church. See, Augustine himself was a Manichaean Gnostic before he became an Orthodox Christian. And really, in my mind, he never became an Orthodox Christian, but he came into the church, and I think he brought some of his Gnostic ways into the church. He made it acceptable to the people. And he started believing and understanding and saying, well, yeah, I, I believe that too. But during his day, there was a lot of people who were fighting. Uh, Augustine and most times when, when Augustine would bring these people before a council and say well I believe total depravity Augustine would say and this guy believes that we're not totally depraved and he would try to get like huge councils to, uh, to denounce these people who didn't believe in total depravity and said they were heretics but guess what he wasn't successful time and time again people who didn't believe in original sin or total depravity they weren't called heretics by church councils in the early church first 300-400 years of the church Okay? Let me just give you some quotes from Augustine so you can hear from the horse's mouth. He says that uh, our nature sinned in Adam. And he also says, From this condemnation, no one is exempt, not even newborn children. He also says that unconscious infants dying without baptism are damned by virtue of their inherited guilt. So he believed in infant baptism. I mean, where is that found in the Bible? It's not found in the Bible. But he had to do something because, you know, if, if he said that newborn infants are damned, which is the, 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 uh, the natural conclusion you would come to, to if you believe in total depravity, then infants, if they're born sinners, they have to be damned by God. Every sinner is damned by God. So he had to find some way of letting children into heaven, of babies into heaven. So he managed this thing called infant baptism, which isn't biblical at all. And people today still believe it. Lots of Presbyterian churches believe it. Okay? Even some big-name people believe it. He also said, children are infected by parents' sins as well as Adam's, and the actual sins of the parents impose guilt upon their children. I mean, I, I don't know what I would say to God if God held my son accountable for my fornication, my drunkenness in the past. I mean, how? how he wasn't even born yet. And God's going to hold my son, who's never done those things, accountable for my sins? That doesn't make any sense. No, court, no courtroom system in the world would uphold that. Not even an unjust in the word a judge's is and a wicked judge. No courses would uphold that. He also said, uh, there is in us a necessity of sinning, meaning we have to sin. Okay. And then one of his uh, later disciples, you know, John Calvin and Martin Luther, followed in his footsteps. Let me just say this, Martin Luther did, I think, some good things for the church. He brought us out of, the, out of Roman Catholicism. A lot of wicked stuff, like, like the indulgences going on. And that's the, really the main thing Martin Luther was mad about, was the indulgences. And he was right to be mad about that, to say that you can pay to get your, your, your friends and family who have died out of purgatory into heaven, which is ridiculous in and of itself. But to go from that and go to these doctrines that he believed in and promoted it is even more ridiculous, if you ask me. You don't refute lies with more lies. You refute lies with truth. But listen to some things he said. He said, uh, this is Martin Luther, he said, the nature and essence of man is, from his birth, an evil tree and a child of wrath. He also said, even children dying unbaptized are lost. These are Martin Luther's own words. Okay? Now contrast what these people, Augustine was around the 4th, 5th century AD, contrast what they said in Martin Luther's 16th century with what the early church said. Now, let me just say this out the bat, I don't think the early church writings are, are, are like inspired or they're God's Word or even close to being on par with God's Word. But they give us an insight to what the early church believed. And if you were to search it out for yourself, as I've done, you'd see they were uniform across the board in what they believed in these issues. Okay, so this, us hear it for yourself. First guy I'm going to say is Justin Martyr. He's around uh, 100 to 150 A.D. He, you know, he, he knew some of the, apostles, the disciples of the disciples, okay, like Polycarp. Every created being is so constituted as to be capable of vice and virtue, for he can do nothing praiseworthy if he had not the power of turning either way. And unless we suppose that a man has the power to choose good and refuse evil, no one can be accountable for any action whatever. That, that makes sense to me. That's so what the Bible promotes, too. You're guilty because of the actions you choose. Not because you were forced to choose them or, someone made, or something inside of you that makes you choose them. Because you've chosen to do those things. And that's why you're accountable for them. Then we have Tertullian, about the same time, in the 100s says, no reward can be justly bestowed, no punishment can be justly inflicted upon him who is good or bad by necessity and not by his own choice. Makes sense. Clement of Alexandria, same time period. Neither promises nor apprehensions, rewards nor punishments are just if the soul has not the power of choosing and abstaining, if evil is involuntary. It just makes sense. I mean, that's what the Bible says from beginning to back, from, from front to back. From beginning to end, that you're accountable for your deeds. You, you you'll be accountable in judgment for what you have done with your with your life. Uh, and then we have uh, let's look at Melito around the same time, one seventy A.D. said there is therefore nothing to hinder you from changing your evil manner to life because you are a free man, free will. Uh, we'll, we'll do one more quote here. Uh, Irenaeus said let your light so shine before men that i may see your good deeds and why call me lord lord and do not do the things that i say he's quoting scripture there and then he says all such passages demonstrate the independent will of man for it is in man's power to disobey god and to forfeit what is good this is the early church and if you want to pick up a book that really is comprehensive it's a book called uh... it's by david berceau the dictionary of early christian beliefs and he actually Brings it together, and every like different thing they talk about, like free will, predestination, baptism. He has them, all the quotes from early church fathers in sections, categorized. And I encourage you to pick it up and look for yourself. But let's look at some proof text That supposedly, there's, there's the book right there. John's got it. You can see for yourself. Just, just go ahead and just hold it up for everybody. You see. So let's let's look at some proof text for original sin. Psalm 51, verse five. Let's go to Psalm 51. And we'll look at some of these texts that they say they use, that they say prove that people are born sinners. They're born sinful people, born with a sinful nature. And psalm 51, is, it's, really like, it's like the penitent psalm of David, okay? This is the, the, the prayer he, he's praying after he finally repents of his sin with Bathsheba and, and murdering her husband and all those things he was involved in. Okay? And he was just really broken over his sin he finally was going to give it up. Now let's just start in verse five, this is the main verse they use. And we'll read through verse eight. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. In the hidden part, you will make me known to wisdom, make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice now the the hermeneutic they'll use here let's say well this is we're gonna interpret this literally so let's let's take that hermeneutic and interpret this whole those three verses literally okay if we were literally brought forth in iniquity and in sin our mother conceived us let's look at verse 7 that means that you are purged by God of your sins with hyssop now who here has had hyssop purge them of their sins anybody no one Now, wait a minute. Let's be consistent here. If we are going to interpret this, literally, everyone here needs to go get some hyssop and cleanse themselves. Otherwise, you're in trouble with God. You're still dirty in the sight. Now, let's go to verse 8. It says, uh, in the the, the bottom of the verse, it says that the bones you have broken, they rejoice. That means that that God broke David's bones, and then once God healed David, his bones started singing. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never heard a bone sing before. Okay? I've heard people sing. The bones don't have voice boxes. Okay, Boys, uh, bones don't have mouth, mouths. Okay, they don't sing. So if we're going to interpret this thing literally, that's the way we—that's sh- the conclusion we should come to. But really, what we know is that from the poetic literature, like Psalms and the Book of Job, a lot of it's figurative, a lot of it's symbolic. Okay, so you know, if we're going to take it symbolic, we can say, well, maybe David is overemphasizing the fact that he did this as a wicked thing by committing adultery with someone, killing her husband doing these wicked things that he overemphasized how sinful he was because he was penitent before God. And this is common within Hebrew literature when someone's penitent, when they're repentant about their sins, okay? But if we are going to take it, I think there's a, a different translation we could use here. I mean, let's look at this for a second. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Now let me ask you a question there. Does it mention anything about Adam and Eve there? No? Does it mention anything about the rest of the world there? No. No, it doesn't. So maybe he's just talking about himself. Maybe David was the only one who was brought forth in iniquity, okay? And then he says, in sin my mother conceived me. Now, in sin my mother conceived me. In sin my mother, his mother in sin conceived him. So maybe, maybe, just maybe, he was an illegitimate child. It's possible. I mean, you take the story of Samuel when he was going to find the new king to anoint him. He went to Jesse's house, David's father. Maybe he's not his father, okay? Because when Samuel asked, bring your sons before me, guess what? He brought all the sons before him, except for who? David. David. So we don't know from Scripture, but to take this Scripture, this very unclear verse, and build a whole doctrine that's the foundation of your whole theology around that one verse, that sounds ridiculous to me. It's like taking the Psalm 14.1, which says the second part says there is no God. Well, my doctrine for now is going to be, I'm atheist. The Bible proclaims atheism, right? But we take the whole Bible together. That's how we interpret Scripture. And one of the main hermeneutics of interpreting Scripture is this. You interpret unclear verses in light of clear verses. And I hope what you'll see today is a lot of clear verses that go against this idea. All right, let's look at um, uh, Psalm 58.3. Let's turn there. there's another verse they use quite often probably second most says the wicked are estranged from the womb they go astray as soon as they are born speaking lies now I think all of us here except for Jesse and Krista, have kids already okay now I was there when every one of my three kids were born alright I was there when all of them started speaking guess what none of them spoke from the mother's womb And guess what? None of them lied from their mother's womb. So is this a literal verse right here? Could it possibly be interpreted literally if babies don't speak when they come from their mother's wombs? Can they lie when they come from their mother's wombs? In all honesty, I think lying is probably the first sin children commit. But the question we'll see later on is, if a little child, two or three or four or five years old, if not to the age of a child, which we'll discuss later too, does God consider that a sin in his sight when a child at that age lies? Okay? But this is, this is figurative stuff and to show you that a figurative uh, interpretation is, is a correct way to interpret these things, let's turn to some other verses that are obviously figurative as well. Let's turn to Job 1.21. Job was right before Psalms, turn to Job 1.21 and like I said, Job is part of the poetic literature in Hebrew scripture and you see that this, this verse we're going to look at is, is very figurative as well. Job couldn't have literally mean verse 21. I'll give you a second to get there. Okay, Job 1.21 says this. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Now, who here expects to, turn to the, return to their mother's womb before they die? And that's the same thing that Nicodemus said. Nicodemus said to Jesus when he said, you must be born again. Well, how can an old man enter to his mother's womb again before, while he's old? And Jesus obviously didn't mean that. But how, how can Job enter again to his mother's womb? He can't. That's the answer. He can't. All right, let's look at one more, Job 31. Job 31, and we're going to look at uh, verse 18. And this is Job talking here. He says, uh, but from my youth I reared him as a father, talking about the, the poor or, the, or the, the, the orphan. He says, from my mother's womb I guided the widow. Now, my son is almost five now, and he still doesn't have the ability to guide a widow. Okay? Now, do you think Job literally from his mother's womb guided a widow? I don't think so. So it's figurative language. So what you see here in the Psalms, these foundational verses they use to back up their, their whole doctrine. Remember, T fo- it's the foundation the house is built upon. The house of tulip is built upon. If T is wrong, the rest of it is out the door. Okay? And these are some of the verses they use as foundational verses. But it's figurative language. I mean, the Calvinists I know, they pride themselves in, in being these expositioners of Scripture. Exegetic, you know, there's all these big, you know, they go through the, these, these books of the Bible expositionally and pride themselves on doing that. It'll be so inconsistent when they go to the book of Psalms. Okay, so these things are, are I would interpret them figuratively. But if you're going to interpret Job, I mean, uh, Psalm 51.5, again, that can be literally if we interpret uh, in light of his mother having him illegitimately. Okay? But if all children are born sinners, then they are all children of the devil. Because all sinners, according to Scripture, are children of the devil. Okay? And this would mean that God knit together children of the devil in their mother's womb. Because the Bible does say that when you're in your mother's womb, he knitted you together. He formed you in the inward parts, the Bible says. Does God make sin? Does God create sin? No. No, he doesn't. Sin isn't some stuff. Okay? Sin is a moral free will action. You do. Whether it's in your heart, your mind, your action, it's something you do. You've chosen willfully to do. That's something you're born in. Okay? But God doesn't knit together sinners. God knits together people who are made in His image. They're made moral beings. Okay? They're made to live the way He expects them to live. Now, children aren't born into a relationship with God God, by any means because a relationship takes interaction. You know, if I want to have a relationship with David, but I never see him. I never hang out with him. I never go out and preach with him. Do, are we really ever going to have a relationship? No, he's dead. Or, or what, what if, what if David wants to have a relationship with me, but I don't even know David exists? Are we going to be able to have a relationship? Of course not. Okay, so relationship takes, takes action. And, and children, unfortunately, they, they may, you may have told them about God. They may have an, uh, some kind of understanding that there is a God. But do they really understand who he is? Can they really have a relationship with someone who they don't even understand, don't even know about really? You can tell a children, too, I mean my son is four years old and he really still doesn't understand, understand the concept of God. I, we were asking him the other day, I said, where's God at? He said, well he's in the garden. We just started the story of Adam and Eve. He said, he's in the garden, Daddy. No, he's not in the garden. See, so he doesn't understand. His intellectual powers can't ascend to that part and understand what I'm talking about. Children's brains don't develop, they're not totally developed as soon as they're born. Children have to learn things. Well, they can't talk. Well, they can't walk. They can't even crawl yet. They have to develop over time so they can do certain things. Okay? But God doesn't make sinners. He makes us born in his image. Let's look at what the Bible says about children. Turn to Matthew 19. Let's see what Jesus said about little children. Matthew 19 and verse 13. It says, uh, then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked him. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for such, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid hands on them and departed from there. So he laid hands on these little children and said, These are this is what the, the kingdom of heaven is made up like. These people, for they're made up like. But are there sinners in the kingdom of heaven? Not only holy people, only saints in the kingdom of heaven. So how can the kingdom of heaven be made up of such as these if they're sinners from birth? But See, Jesus himself gives a picture of, of his view of children through his own eyes, through his own mouth. I don't consider them sinners. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. They have childlike faith. In fact, let's, look, let's turn back one page, Matthew 18, verse 3. And It says this. This is Jesus talking again. He said, as Surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So therefore, he, you know, he's, not saying, he's talking about children's faith, their humility, their childlike faith, but again, he's using them as an example. You need to be like these children. Stop trying to be these adults where you're off doing your own thing. You need to be like, a little bit more like these children. He's using that as an example. But let's look at some of the text that 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 uh, and some more text that they use to say that look, we're we're sinners from birth. Okay, turn to Genesis chapter eight, and we look at the idea of of when do children become sinners? Is there some kind of age of accountability or age of knowledge where children become sinners? So I want to look at this now, and, and we can see for ourselves, we're going to look at some Hebrew words here and, and understand what the words are saying. Matthew 8.21 says this, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man's heart, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. From his youth. Okay. Now the Hebrew word for youth there is no war, and it means youth or early life. Doesn't mean baby. It means youth early life. But if you watch a Paul Washer video, and I respect Paul Washer, I respect that he preaches the gospel and repentance and sin against sin. But if you watch the video that he, he changed the word around. You need to listen very closely. I was watching, he said, now that means baby. That's what he said in the video. Is he just bold faced lying or is he misunderstanding something here? That doesn't mean baby. There's a Hebrew word for baby, and it ain't in word. It means youth, early life. So when someone comes to, the, to their age of accountability, or youth, or early life, they always choose to willfully sin against God. Okay? So Genesis 8.21 is from his youth. Not from being born, but from his youth.
1: Acts 26.4 says Paul, his manner of life from his youth was being strict according to the law. Right. He doesn't mean from, from his baby.
0: Right. So, Paul decided to go the opposite way. He decided from his youth he was going to live according to the strictest manner of the law. He was living according to Hebrew laws. Alright, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 39. And we'll look at another word here. Alright, Deuteronomy 1 verse 39 says this. Moreover... Your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your sons, who to this day have no knowledge of good or evil, shall enter into the promised land there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. Now, little ones here is the the Hebrew word, taf, and it means little children. So we're saying that the last verse says that youth, people become sinners. Every intent from their youth is evil and wicked. Now it's saying little ones, little children, have no knowledge of good or evil. And the problem with having no knowledge of good or evil, you can't be accountable for good or evil unless you have knowledge that something's good or evil. You know, so that's the way it works in God. That's what James 4:17 says. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Okay, so you have to have knowledge or understanding that something's wrong. You know, I can tell my children, you know, until i blue in the face, lying's wrong, these things are wrong, But until they really understand it, they wouldn't be held accountable. And I'll, I'll give you an illustration here in a few minutes. So we have two different Hebrew words here. As little children, they have no knowledge of good or evil. So Obviously, they didn't have knowledge of good or as a baby either. Therefore, they're not sinners. But as a youth, every intent of their heart has been wicked since their, since their youth. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah is right before Jeremiah. And we'll look at Jeremiah next. Isaiah chapter 7, and uh, verse 15 and 16 says this. He will eat curds and honey. At the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So we have two contrasts here. At some point in time, he does not know enough to refuse evil and choose good. But then he will know enough to refuse evil and choose good. The word here is the boy. And the Hebrew word for the boy is nahar, meaning young man or boy. So we we have the little children, don't know any better. Then we have youth and boy, it seems like at boyhood, they come to the knowledge of knowing good and choosing good and refusing evil. And then at youth, every intent of their heart is evil only from their youth. Now one more time, Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 25. And we see another example of, of this youth idea. The same word, Hebrew word in the war, which means youth or early life. And Jeremiah 3.25 says this. Let us lie down in our shame, and let our humiliation cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth, even to this day. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. So they have, they, have not, they have sinned against God from their youth, even to this day. Not from their childhood, not from their babyhood, from their youth. Same Hebrew word we, we saw in the first scripture we looked at in Genesis. Nur war means youth, early life. Guys, okay? I just want you to listen for a second. Romans 7.9. Okay? It says this. This is Paul speaking. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived... And I died. He died spiritually. And spiritual death is separation from a sinner from God. Because eternal life, which we'll see later on, is a relationship with God the Father. Okay? So Paul was alive once. Now, if he was born a sinner, then he was never alive. Spiritually. He was dead spiritually from birth. Because it was, it was, as sinners, you're separated from God. It says he was alive once. And now what is Romans? We all know from the way of the Master, we all know Romans 7 7. It says, Law brings the knowledge of sin. See, law brings the knowledge of sin. Sin comes in before he was alive. Before the law came, he was alive once. and the law came in, brought the knowledge of sin, and then he died. That's what happens to every single person here in their life. You have no knowledge of good and evil. The law comes, you understand the intellectually, and then you disobey it and you die. It happens to every single one of us. Okay, uh, Romans nine eleven says this: For the children, little children here, okay. And it's talking, actually talking about Jacob and Esau. Being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. They had not done good or evil. But this defeats the whole idea that we're born sinners. If you're born sinners, then you've done good or evil. Because you've done it in Adam. That's what they say. You did it in Adam. But let me just, you know, in that, that Paul Washer video, he uses this example. And they're always I'm bringing him up, not to, to beat down Paul Washer. I, really, I like some of the things he has to say. You know, I just mean, I don't like this theology. I think it's kind of inconsistent, but, uh, you know, he, say, he uses it in this video I'm talking about, this idea of this baby in a watch, okay, and it's kind of ironic because I had my, my little girl, Carrie Ann, sitting on my lap while I was watching this video, and she was playing with my watch, and I kept telling her, no, don't touch my watch, and she kept going back to my watch, and in the middle of me doing this, with my, my, my little girl, and he, he says in the video, he says, if, if your baby who's playing with your watch, if, if she was big enough and strong enough, she'd rip your arm off, beat you in the head with your arm, and walk out with you, it with you bleeding. Just playing with your watch. But what, what does that prove? Does that prove a child's a sinner? Of course it doesn't prove that. It just proves they don't understand. They don't know any better. That's what it proves. I mean, I have, a, I have an, an uncle, my, actually my wife's uncle, who's a little uh, mentally handicapped. And one time, I I was just talking to Rod about this. And one time that he was actually roaming about the city, doing what he wanted to do, and he was trying to break in the cars. All along, he's trying to break in the car. And these cops came along and said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm trying to break in this car. Leave me alone. And he just keeps on going about his way. He doesn't even, you know, doesn't uh, submit to the cops, doesn't do what they want him to do. So finally they arrest him and bring him, and they, they arrest him. So they keep going to court, and all these judges are just, they're keep on convicting him. But finally this one judge says, why is this man in my courtroom? Why is he even here? Are you guys foolish to bring this man to charge him with this? Why? You guys are... See, see, the judge knows. In our system, which is built on the Bible, our courts knows that someone that isn't to the age of account doesn't understand things, we don't hold them accountable for it. You know, if, if my son, who's four years old, were to, were to kill somebody, would he send him to jail for it? Would they give him the death penalty for it? Of course not. It's the same way with mentally handicapped people. They don't have that mental capacity, the understand, intellectual understanding, the knowledge to be held accountable. In fact, a lot of times, if a child does something horribly wrong, they hold the parents accountable for it. That's what they hold accountable for it, okay? But, you know, when a child commits a crime, they don't, they, in fact, most times they go to juvenile court to do something bad. E- even at, at, like a teenager, they'll go to they'll go something to a lesser punishment because they know they haven't grown up to know as much as they should know. Then there's this idea about us being dead and trespassing. sin. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verses 1 and 5. This is another scripture that's used quite a bit to to try to prove T, or original sin. It says, Ephesians 2, 1 says this, And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Then down to verse 5, it says this, Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then to Colossians chapter 2, a couple books back. Colossians chapter 2 and and, uh, verse 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Now, I mentioned this a a little bit ago, I talked about John 17, 3. In John 17, 3, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, this is eternal life. Knowing God the Father and the one he has sent. Okay? So if eternal life or spiritual life is knowing God the Father, having a relationship with God the Father, then being dead, it means your relationship with God is broken. It's null and void. It's not there. That's what. See, see children, like I said before, they, they can't be born into a relationship with God. But at the same time, you, you don't go to the opposite extreme and say, well, that means they're sinners. You know, to say that they're, they're sinners or they're not sinners, it, it doesn't mean there's not a third choice. The third choice is they're basically amoral, they they don't have the capacity of doing moral or immoral things. They don't have the knowledge or capacity to do those things. Now if we did what some of them do, it would be considered a sin for us, because we know better. But when a child does something like that, they're not considered a sinner in God's eyes, because they don't know any better. And to to have a broken relationship with somebody means you have to have done something to offend them. Children don't do things to offend God. Okay, but. When someone becomes dead and trespasses and sins, why are they dead? Because of their trespasses and sins. So once we come to an age, an age of knowledge, an age of accountability, and we choose to sin, then we, we have become dead to God. But dead spiritually doesn't mean that you're dead altogether. And the council will say, well, you can't do anything then. You, you can't do anything good. Well, the Bible also contrasts this in Romans 6 and says that, that you're spiritually, made spiritually alive with Christ. Now, if you're spiritually alive with Christ, does that mean you don't have the capacity to do bad? If, if while you're dead to, to, to God and your relationship to Him, you have no capacity to do good, then while you're alive to Christ, that should naturally mean you have no capacity to do bad. But we know that's not true. I mean, everyone of us in here, I think, who's adult, who's a Christian, all of us can say that we've sinned since so we become a Christian. Now, we don't make excuses for it. We never had to sin. We don't have to sin today. But we've all sinned. Okay? So as a spiritually alive person to God, we still have the ability to sin. Okay? But, you know, we've all watched a movie where we heard, the, like, maybe an Italian movie says that he's dead to me. Talk, the father talking about the son. Now, is the son really dead? No. He's just saying, his relationship to me is broken. I had nothing to do with him. He might even disown him. Say, I never want anything to do... He'll treat him as if He's not alive. It's as if maybe he never was born in the first place. But he's still alive. He's still born. There's still a capacity to have a relationship if the relationship becomes mended. That's what happened on the cross. Christ offers reconciliation to God for every sinner. Okay? And we see this in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Let's just turn there for a second. Luke 15. Parable of the prodigal son of the lost son. And I'm not going to read through the whole thing, uh, but what I want to focus on is a couple of verses here. Verse 24 says this. This is when the son had come back. The son left his muck and his mire. He realized he was being foolish, living his life foolishly, living his life in the bockery. And verse 24 says this. This is the speaking of the son. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. And then down in uh, verse 32, it was, this is him talking to his older son, who was mad about them throwing a party for his younger son. He said, it was right that we should be merry and, uh, make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Now, two things there. First of all, uh, that he was dead. Now, what does that mean? I mean, the son ran off. He treated his father... As if his father was dead. Because he asked his father for inheritance. And you don't get your inheritance either to the end of the father's life or to the father's dead. So he said, Father, give me my money now. He's basically saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Give me, my, give me my inheritance, Father. And he went off and lived his life as if his father didn't exist. As if his father was dead. And when he went off and did that, his father was a holy man, a godly man. His father and his relationship were broken. They didn't have contact with each other. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't, you know, email each other. They didn't have any contact. Their relationship with each other was dead. But I want to point out to you also here, it says, he is alive again. Now what does that mean? Again means that he was alive at one point in time. It goes back to Paul. He says, before the law came, I was alive. I was alive was apart from the law. But when the law came, sin revived, and I died. So this, this young man was alive. His relationship with the Father was broken when he chose to sin and go his own way. And then he came back to the Father to get a reconciled relationship with the Father. And he's alive again. That's what happens to every lost sinner. At one point in time, you're a little child, you're, you're alive. and I mean, God forbid any of my children go off the deep end. They go and live the way I lived. But it's a chance it could happen. I'm going to do my best to teach them the way they should go. they never depart from the faith. But I'm going to teach them and train them. But they can go their own way if they wanted to. If they did, they would have died, and they came back, they'd be alive again. Same thing you say about any lost sinner. Now let's turn, now I want to discuss the topic of, of Jesus Christ being just like us. Now we started out this whole thing talking about the Gnostics and how they said that Christ didn't come in the flesh. And that, you know, a lot of times they'll say stuff like, well, Jesus was born of a virgin, so he wouldn't have a sinful nature. He was born of a virgin, he was conceived uh, you know, by Mary, by the Holy Spirit in Mary, so he wouldn't have a sinful nature. Okay? First of all, there's one thing that's wrong with that right off the bat. Mary herself was a sinner. was she not? So if we all have a sinful nature, did Mary have a sinful nature? So is part of Jesus from Mary? So if really we all have a sinful nature, man and woman every child, then God, Jesus would have at least been half sinful nature. Okay? But let's look at uh, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. And what you'll see, we'll discuss sinful nature here in a second, too, is the word sinful in nature is never found in the Greek. Okay? Never found in the Greek. Alright, Hebrews 2.14 says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The word for flesh there is the Greek word Sarx, And it said that Christ came in the same, likewise. He himself shared in the same flesh that he might, through death, might destroy him by the power of death, that is the devil. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. A few verses down. Verse 17 18 says this. Let's talk about Jesus again. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are being tempted. Now, a lot of us have been through things in our life, like say, maybe you were an alcoholic, and, and someone wants to become a Christian, but they're, they're an alcoholic. You can help that person not being an alcoholic, because you've been through it. You can sympathize with that person. And this is saying that Jesus can sympathize with every sinner, because in all things, he was made like us. In all things. So, if we're born with a sinful nature that makes us sin, or causes us to sin, but Jesus isn't born with a sinful nature, can he help us when we fight temptation of the sinful nature? Can he sympathize with us? Of course he can't. That's not what the scripture says. He came in the same flesh. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. says this, says, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, Christ was tempted in all points. So if we're tempted by the flesh, he's tempted by the flesh. In fact, he was probably tempted worse than us. I mean, he had powers that we don't have. He had powers to turn our stone into bread. I mean, the devil wouldn't come to us if we're in the desert for 40 40 days fasting and say, Hey, if you're hungry, just turn that stone into bread. You know, if, if you really believe in God, just throw yourself off this cliff and call upon angels. We don't have the power. See, Christ was tempted even more than we were tempted. But he was tempted at least the way we're tempted too. And then we already read 1 John, which says that, By this you know the Spirit of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. And then another verse that talks about this is 2 John, and verse 7. It says this. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, who do, not, who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist. So the problem you have, is: anyone here have an NIV translation? Anyone? Okay. Well, good. An NIV, you see these two words, sinful nature, a lot of times. You see it in the book of 1 John, you'll see it in um, Romans quite a bit, Okay, you'll even see it in Galatians, sinful nature. But the problem is, these translators are suffering from imposing their own theology upon the text. The words sinful nature in Greek are never found together. And what they're translating is one single word, the Greek word sarx. And all it means is flesh. It means flesh. So, we're in the flesh, Christ came in the flesh, okay? So if flesh, you know, if we're going to be consistent here, once again, we looked at Psalm 51, the inconsistency there, and interpreting literally, now let's be consistent with the word sarks. If when talking about humans like you and me, these translators translate the Greek word sarks as sinful nature, shouldn't he then do it every time? Surely he should. So let's go back to these two verses about Jesus coming in the flesh, and let's substitute flesh with sinful nature. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the sinful nature is of God. Yet, with, uh, it, it says, uh, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the sinful nature is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So Christ came in the sinful nature, okay, according to these NIV translators, if they're going to be consistent. And in 2 John 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ has come in the sinful nature. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist. So you choose for yourself. Are you born with a sinful nature? Then I guess Christ was born with a sinful nature. But you know what? If Christ was a sinner, we're all still in our sins. If Christ was a sinner, our faith is futile. If Christ was a sinner, we're all on our way straight to hell no matter what we do. Christ was not a sinner. He was sinless. Behold, the sinless Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And that's what Christ was. But it's not so sin as a sinful nature in the original languages. Nature simply means an adult person's character, what makes up their character, the choices they have made that makes them what they are. So the English word can mean what you're born with, but it also can mean the total of who you are, your character, the what you're like. You know, if, if I were to say that, say Michael Jordan, for example, everybody seems to know who he is. If I say Michael Jordan is a natural-born basketball player, Now, am I saying that he was born with the ability to play basketball? Am I saying he was born with the ability to score 30 points a game, win six MVPs, win seven championships? I think that's how many he won. Was I born with that ability? Was was he born with that ability to to play basketball? If you talked to Michael Jordan, you said that to him, he'd laugh in your face. He worked hard hours. He talked to him, he'd tell you he was in Durham, he'd be shooting basketball to midnight, practicing, trying to become what he wanted to become. So you practice hard and got better through effort and over time. Now there may be some people who are, who are born with more athletic ability, physically. So maybe it might be easier for them to play basketball or, or football or certain sports. Or maybe some people are more tennis, yeah. Some people are more musically inclined. So that it, music comes easier to them. But no one's born a musician. You don't come out of your mother's womb playing the piano. Now once you start learning, it might be easier for you than it is for me because I tried and I couldn't do it. Okay. Right, but it might be easier for you, but no one's born that way. You know, just like, you know, sin, all, all the flesh is is temptation. It tempts you. Now, some people may be born with more temptation in some areas than me. Like, if I was born of, a, of, a, of my mom, they say my mom was a, a crack addict. And I was born a crack baby. Guess what? I'm going to have a, a predisposition towards wanting crack, and you're not. So if the flesh tempts you, not by any means saying you don't have the flesh, that doesn't tempt you, but it does not make you sin. It does not make you a sinner. It tempts you. And that's all the flesh is. But let's look at some, some scripture to talk about this nature. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. This is one of the verses they use quite often. To talk about someone's born with a, a wicked nature, born as a child of wrath. All right, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 says this, well, let's just start in verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespass and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the son of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Now I want to point out to you here, this is speaking of adults, and it's speaking of the wicked character of adults. And it's clear, clearly evident from the context. The context of Ephesians 2.3 shows that Paul is not speaking of the birth of children, but he's speaking of people who are living wickedly currently, or used to live wickedly. Nowhere in this scripture does he mention Adam, mention Eve, mention the birth of a baby, and that people are born this way. He simply uses the word nature. And because he used the word nature, children of wrath, people automatically imposed their definition of nature upon the text. Said, wait a minute, see, they were born that way. Does it mention someone's birth in this text anywhere? Does it mention they were born that way, that they have to sin? It says, by nature, they were children of wrath. But right before that, it talks about their wicked character. It says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. People who walk this way. They lived this way. Okay? In times past, you walked according to the course of this world. And then he continues in verse 3, speaking of their participation with other sinners in carnality and wickedness. Okay? It says, uh, among whom also we had, uh, had our conver- conversation in time past of the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and more by nature, whereby our past wicked works which make up who we were, the children of wrath, even as others. It was only after he described their past events, the things they had done, not just what they were, but the things they had done, he mentioned were by nature. Okay, We were by nature children of wrath, even as the others. I mean, if Paul was talking about something they were born with, surely he would have mentioned from their birth. If he was talking about something that was passed on from Adam and Eve to us, He would have mentioned that as well, but you don't see him mentioning this at all. See, the people here, like I said, they superimpose their definition of nature upon the text. Like I said before, if I were to call Michael Jordan a natural-born basketball player, do I really mean he was born with the ability to play basketball? Something he worked at over time. And sinners work at their sin. So that sin, instead of righteousness, becomes natural to them. Even to the point where they'll sear their conscience, corrupt and defile their conscience to their own damnation. So yeah, sinners can come to the point where it'll become natural for them. That they naturally sin, and it's no big deal. I mean, I don't know what your testimony but that's what my testimony was. I was naturally a sinner. I loved my sin. And after a while, you know, when I first started sinning, my conscience was convicted. They'd tell me, no, this is wrong. Don't alarm my head. Stop doing this. But I just kept on going. I loved my sin. And And eventually it became natural to me. Okay? But, but the works of the flesh are some things you do. You know, it's not something that you are. It's something you do. I mean, you look at uh, certain passages like Ephesians 5, 1 through 7. It talks about the works of the flesh, something you're working at. Uh, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, talks about the works of the flesh. And it lists actions that people actually do. It doesn't say, oh, you were born this way. It lists fornication, lust, sexual morality. It lists all these things that are actions people involve themselves in. And that's what makes up what they are in God's sight, because they're sinners. But it's it's not not what you're born with that determines what you do. It's a man's will, a man's heart that determines his nature, not what you're born with. While a man may be tempted by his flesh, as well as the world and the devil, he must choose to give in to those things in order to have an evil nature okay so it's a man's choices and and therefore his character that makes up his nature people aren't born evil they learn to do evil they learn to do wrong just like anyone else does so instead of obeying god's word obeying their conscience obeying the holy spirit obeying a christian preacher they go on in their own ways let me just let me just show you why i believe this nature is interpreted in that way. I'm going to show you some other scriptures here, okay? Because nature, I mean, if, if you use the word nature in the English language, we can make it mean something you're born with. But I'm going to tell you this is not what it's talking about here. So let's turn to Romans chapter 2 and verse 14. So you see that I'm, I'm backing my definition of nature up with other scriptures. See, we don't come to the scriptures with our own definition of words and impose it upon the scriptures. We define the words in the scriptures by what the scriptures tell us to define it as. And you'll see from these verses I'm about to to read to you that there's no way it can mean something you're born with. Okay? Romans chapter 2 and verse 14. For when Gentiles who do have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. See, it says right here, Gentiles. Now, our Gentiles, if we're going to go with the the assumption that everybody has a sinful nature, they have to, they're all by nature, they're born children of wrath. It says here, it says, Gentiles who do not have a law, the written laws that Jews have, by nature do the things in the law. Now, wait a minute here. What kind of nature are Gentiles born with? Are they born with a sinful nature or a law-abiding nature? Are they born with a wicked nature or a nature that wants to obey God? Because it says here, by nature, they do the things in the law. By nature. And it's really talking about their conscience. They're born with a conscience inside of them to help steer them in life. Now let's turn to Galatians chapter 1. Actually, Galatians chapter 2. And we'll start in, uh, in verse 13. Actually, let's start in verse 11 so you can get the whole picture here. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For certain men came from James, when, when, before a certain man came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. When they came, he would and separate himself, fearing those who are of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. When I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. So are now Jews born with a different nature than Gentiles are? No. See, he's talking about something they learned. See, Jewish people, they were, they were taught in, in the Shema, in Deuteronomy 6, to, to bind the, the word of God upon your forehead, upon the doorposts of your house. Always teach your children. They were taught the law. So by nature, naturally, they would obey the law. They were taught to obey. That's that's what the Bible says. See, the Calvinists have no hope when it comes to teaching your children the way they should go. They may never depart from the faith. Train them and teach them. Because who's to say they're going to be a children of wrath? They're not going to be someone who's damned to hell. Why even bother teaching them? But we know that when we teach our children the word of God, it will affect them, it will impact them, and they have a better chance later in life to become a Christian. Because it's natural for them to obey God's law. See, it says right here that, well, before we read in Romans 1 that, that Gentiles by nature do things required in the law. And that is a law in itself. But now we read that, that Jews are born with a different nature than Gentiles. See, so the definition for nature, according to Scripture, is not something you're born with. It's something you learn and becomes natural to you. And most people, unfortunately, learn to become sinners. They learn from their parents. They learn, I mean, someone will say, well, you know, the usual Calvinistic argument is like, well, I didn't teach my kids to lie. I didn't teach them to steal. Well, you don't have to. The world teaches them. Their their flesh uh, uh, propels them to do those kind of things. It doesn't make them do it, but they choose to do those things. Okay, so nature is not something that that you're born with. It's something that you you choose to do. I think Romans chapter 6, let's turn there, uh, kind of sums this part up for us. Romans 6 and verse 16. <clears throat> it says this, it says, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are the, that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. So you have to present yourselves. You're going to be tempted, but you must present yourselves to it, whether it's to sin leading to death or whether it's to God leading to life. But you must present yourselves. The opportunity might be presented to you, to sin, but you must present yourselves, okay? So, someone who's come to, to the age of accountability has two things working in them, the flesh and the conscience, Satan and God, the world and the word. They are the ones that choose to whom they will yield to, though, okay? So, let's, 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 let's think about this for a second. There's an idea in the Calvinist circles that for, someone to, for everyone to be a sinner, because the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And right at this point, I could hear a Calvinist saying in their head, Ah, you're saying someone can hypothetically live a life without sinning. Hypothetically, yes. Practically, never going to happen. They say, well, for for everyone to be a sinner, they have to have something behind them to make them sin. Let's look at that from the Scripture's point of view for a second. Lucifer, one of the archangels, did he have a sinful nature? Yes. No, he did not. Did Did he have Satan tempting him? Did he have the world tempting him? That's right. He was Satan. So he had no outward temptation. He chose to disobey. Lucifer didn't need it. Let's look at Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. If we're going according to the Calvinist idea here, there's no sinful nature yet at least, right? There's no world to, to, to tempt them. And then Satan comes along and tempts them. And they give in. Did they need a sinful nature to make them sin? See, it's for someone to say, because everyone sins, or everyone has sinned, everyone will sin, that means you have to have something that makes you sin. That's a false conclusion. Universal sin, the fact that every person who ever comes, ever has, and ever will come to the age of accountability, will sin at some point in time, does not prove a universal sinful nature. It could just as easily prove universal temptation and universal disobedience. That's all it is. And I'm not going to go through these verses today, but when they go to verses like, all have sinned, you know, and they go through the Romans 2 where it lists all these things that are unrighteous. No No one's righteous. Everyone's unrighteous. No one sees after God. That's not proving that anyone has a sinful nature. It's just saying what everyone has done, what everyone will do at some point in time. It's just universal disobedience. And who are we to think that we have three strikes against us, the world, the flesh, and the devil? All these things tempting us. And Lucifer had none of those things. Adam and Eve only had one of those things. If they didn't obey, then I guess we're not going to obey either, are we? We had more temptation than they ever could imagine having. And everyone had disobeyed, and everyone will disobey. Okay? So, all universal sin, or people eventually sinning, proves universal temptation and universal disobedience, universal rebellion, universal failure. That's all it proves. You'll never find one verse in Scripture that says, you have to sin, or you're born with something that makes you sin. You won't find a verse. They impose their own thinking upon the scripture itself, okay? But no one has has ever not sinned once coming to the age of accountability, and no one ever will, okay? But it's, it's, it's a mistake, a bad mistake to assume that man must have something inside of him that makes him sin in order for him to sin, okay? The examples of Lucifer, Adam, and Eve all refute this idea, all right? So we're all born with something called free will. It's a gift by God. Okay, And every, every good and perfect thing is a gift from God, as James 1.17 says. But uh, free will, let me just define free will for you. Free will is simply the power given by God that a person can choose between two opposite things, usually good and evil, righteous and unrighteous. That's, the, that's what free will is. It doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. I can't fly to the outer space. It doesn't mean that. I can only do what God's given me the ability, to, and God's given me the ability to choose right or wrong. Good or evil. Okay? And, and let me just read some scripture that God commands people to choose and he wants them to seek after him. Okay? And, and these verses presuppose the idea that people do have something called free will. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, says this. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. This is Joshua speaking, I believe. That I have said before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. That's Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. Actually that might have been Moses talking there. But in Joshua chapter 24 verse 15, this is Joshua speaking here and he says this Joshua 24:15 says, If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Were the gods with your father served when you were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's making a choice there. He's calling them to choose. This is one of my favorite scriptures to use at the end of an open air message. when I'm calling people to repentance. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. It says this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. I mean, he's calling people to choose here, forsake their sin, return to God. And we have the same thing in the book of Acts. Let's turn to the book of Acts. This is one of the prime examples that we can give here. Uh, that We have this thing called free will. Acts chapter 17 and verse 26. So we have God commanding people to, to turn, to repent, to, to follow him willfully, to choose. Because he's given them the ability to choose. Okay? Isaiah 55, uh, I mean, Acts chapter 17, I'm sorry, verse 26 says this. And he has made from one blood every nation of man to dwell in all the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord. So here we have Rathabat. You don't determine who you're born to. Where you're born, what time you're born into, what time period. But he says, I have chosen these things for you so that you will seek me. And so one of the people on college campus said, well, what about the guy in India who's never heard of the gospel, never heard of the Bible? Well, God's placed him where he is so that he'll seek him. That's what God's done. He can choose to seek him or not, and most people probably won't seek him. But it's the same true here in America, where the Bible is prevalent. People don't seek him here either. Just, as many, just a higher percentage seek him here than they do in India, It's really not much difference. Okay? And then down to verse 30, it says this. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, God commands all men, everywhere, to repent. So this isn't, you know, a lot of Calvinists will say, well, when I go I ask them, well, when you go out preaching, you know, how do you know who's the elect and who isn't? Who God's chosen to be saved and who God's chosen not to be saved? But they'll say, well, if I knew who God was choosing to be saved, I'd just preach to them. In fact, you have Charles Spurgeon say, well, if God put stripes on the back of, a, of an elect person, I just reach, reach up to the shirt and say, oh, they're elect, I'll preach to them, and they'll get saved. But the Bible right here, this is not a human being doing this. This is God commanding all men everywhere to repent. You want to know why? He's given them the ability to repent. He's given every man a free will. He's drawing all men near, according to the Bible. Okay, so he's, he's commanding all men because they have the ability given by him to do those things. Okay? And then in James 4, verse 8, it says this. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. So you have God commanding people to repent, commanding them to choose, commanding them to seek after him, because guess what? They have the ability to do those things given to them by him. And then we have this this thing where people like Jesus, John the Baptist, Stephen, Paul, if people are really born with a sinful nature, they can't help with the sin, they're going to sin, they can't do anything about it, they're pretty mean to these people. I mean, just listen to some of the things they say to them. In in Matthew 3, 7, John the Baptist says this. He says, but when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees, and Sadducees coming to his baptisms He said to them, brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Now we all know Pharisees are hypocrites. They knew the law of God. But they can't help it. They just got sinful natures. They can't help but the sin. You know, God's made them that way. God did sin together in the mother's womb and because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden, therefore they're guilty of their, their sin and they have to sin. So why would he be so mean to them? I mean it'd be like me you know, uh, taking a blind man and he's walking down the street, and he bumps into me, and I kick him in the head. I say, what are you doing, blind man? He doesn't know what he's doing. He can't see where he's going. I wouldn't treat a blind man like that. And that's the that's that's an illustration that you, you hear used in way of the Master oftenly, but, often. But, but i tell you this, that sinners aren't blind, uh, unwillfully, like they're, it's imposed upon them, like a, someone's born blind. They're willfully blind. They're not cripples, they're criminals. They're not victims. They're willfully rebellious, the Bible says. Okay? And that's why John the Baptist is okay when he's saying this to these people. Because they know better. And he's telling them to repent, you brood of vipers. That's why he does it. You know, Jesus himself said of John the Baptist, he was the greatest man born among women. Now, if he was wrong in his message, surely Jesus would have put a disclaimer on it clear and said, but be careful, he's kind of harsh sometimes. <laughs> no, but he didn't do that. He says the greatest man born among women. Okay? And then we have, you know, uh, Jesus saying things like this in Matthew 22, 18. But Jesus perceived their witness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Well, they can't help. I mean, they are born with hypocrisy, right? That was one of the sins they were born with. They can't help but to be hypocrites. You know, I, I often wonder for a Calvinist, like someone who could preach on a college campus, and there's lot of, lots of homosexuals on college campus these days. And someone says, well, I was born a homosexual. You know, what's their answer to that? If he's born with a sinful nature, maybe he was really born a homosexual. He can't do anything about it until God forces himself upon him and changes him. So really, you have to say, you're right, you are born a homosexual. And if if a sinner said, well, I can't repent, he'd say, yeah, you're right, you can't repent. But we know that's not true. By John's words against these sinners and Jesus' words, I mean, look at Matthew chapter 23, the whole chapter, pronouncing woes upon cities, calling people hypocrites, because he knows they know better. He knows they can do something about it. That's what the point is. Then we have have Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He says in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. I want to point out this to you. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. It says right here that in this uh, passage in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. So you know what? These people are speaking exactly what the Holy Spirit wants them to say to these people. It's like God speaking directly to these people through human beings. And therefore, God calls them these things stiff necked, uncircumcised, and hard. You always resist the Holy Spirit because He knows they have the ability not to resist the Holy Spirit. He knows they have the ability to not be uncircumcised in the heart and hard and stiff necked. Okay? And then in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, this is, this is Paul talking here, or Saul at this point in time. Acts 13.9 says, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, once again, looked intently at him, Elemas the sorcerer, and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Poor Elemas. I mean, why is Paul being so mean to him? He can't help it. He was born that way. He has to be a sorcerer. He has to be a sinner. He has to pervert the straight ways of the Lord. He has to be a son of the devil. In fact, he was born. He was born a son of the devil. And he, he doesn't know any better. That's his nature. That's what he was born with. But we know that's not true. We know that's not true. Man is born with free will. And I'll tell you this that God says that he is just. God, the Bible claims about God himself that he is just. And let me give you some examples of a human being being unjust. If I were to take my dog, Sally, she's a good dog, by the way, and I were to, to say, well, I want my dog to fly today. I took her on top of a ten-story building. I said, Sally, now Sally, you're going to fly today. And she said, you know, kind of looks at me real weird, and I can't fly. She's probably thinking in her little pea brain, I can't fly. And I said, well, Sally, if you can't fly, I'm going to kick you off the roof. So she said, rrr, rrr, so I said, and there she goes, flat. <smack> Was that just for me to do that? No. Because guess what, Sally has no ability to fly. And if I try to make her fly when she has no ability to fly, it's unjust. But God is just because He's giving man free will. Let's think about a new Holocaust in America. Which this could be a prophecy, by the way, just so you know. Well, uh, let's say that the new Holocaust in America is that uh, Muslims come over here, and, and they say, they say, well if you're not born with, uh, with blue eyes, and blonde hair, um, and black skin, that I'm going to kill you. That's, that's the new rules, okay? And did anyone here choose what kind of color eyes you were born with? No. What color hair you were born with? Mm-hmm. What color skin you were born with? No. So it's not a choice you can make. It's something that's imposed upon you by your parents, their DNA, okay? said so anyone who's not born this way, uh, you're going to be tortured until you change yourself to being this way, okay? So the only person I've ever known to change the color of his skin is Michael Jackson. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> He's the only one I know. I mean, you can go out and get a tan. If you're, if you're white, you can go out and get a tan and try to be as dark as you possibly can. You can color your hair and get some contacts in. But you really can't change yourself. And they say, well, anyone who doesn't do these things, they're going to be tortured until they do something about it. Would that be a just thing to do? No. Sure wouldn't, because you have no ability to do those things. But God calls you to do what, only what you can do. He demands you to do only what you have the ability to do. So, the conclusion of the matter is this. We aren't born sinners. We aren't born sinners. People are only accountable for their knowledge. That means children who aren't at the age of accountability or the age of knowledge are mentally handicapped people. They aren't sinners. There's nothing that makes us sin. There's a corrupt flesh, but it's not a sinful nature. The flesh tempts you, but it doesn't make you sin or force you to sin. We have free will to choose, good or evil. No one has, has or ever will live sinless except Jesus. But moral character, moral guilt, and accountability are non-transferable. Like a bank account where you transfer from savings to checking. You know, your, your, your parent's character doesn't transfer to you. Okay, if that was true, then if I was a Christian, I was a Christian when my kids were born. They're all Christians now. They're all saints because they were born from me. And I was a Christian when they were born. When they were conceived, I was a Christian. But no, that's not true. God will not hold us accountable for Adam's sin or anyone else's sin. There is no excuse for sin at all, ever. And God is just. Those are the conclusions of the matter. And I submit to you, the thing that angers me the most about tea, besides the fact that it's unbiblical, is that it maligns the character of God. I love God, and He reveals Himself to us through His word, and what this promotes about God or what it tries to proclaim about God is untrue. And hopefully you'll see that, but I'm going to tell you this that you need to you know, I try to do it as thoroughly as I can today. I had a lot of things from, from last time, but you know if, if you have stuff questions about, it, seek it out. but let me tell you this: don't go to theology books, because every theology book ever written has a, has a, a bias to it. Don't go to Charles Spurgeon. Don't go to Paul Washer. Don't go to John Piper. Don't go to John Wesley. Don't go to Charles Finney. You go to the Bible yourself and read it, and God will reveal to you the truth. That's all you need. I mean, did the people in the first century have have, uh, commentaries? Did they have theology books? They had the Spirit of God, and they had the Word of God. It's all any person needs to be fully equipped to live their life for Jesus. So that's what you don't go to these men. If you go to men, you're going to believe what men believes. And, all, and most, most men, if they, when they write these books, they're, they're wrong in some way. But go to the Word of God, and you'll believe the truth. Don't just believe what I say, come out here preaching it you know, passionately. You need to believe what the Bible says. If I'm wrong, you come to me and tell me I'm wrong. If you can prove to me I'm wrong, I'll submit to you and, and forsake what I just, everything I just told you. So does anyone have any, any questions or comments? Yeah,
1: um, the two scripture references about... Um the father's
0: sin uh, transferred to the children right and vice versa. What, do you have those hands? That's uh Ezekiel, I believe it's uh eighteen. Let's see. A few of them. A yeah, Ezekiel eighteen, is basically the whole the whole uh, chapter of eighteen. Now, let me just read that real quick, Ezekiel 18. It says this. It says, The, the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, why, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the was of saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So he's saying right at the bat, why, why is this proverb in Israel that, that the, the father has eaten a sour grape, but their children's teeth are... So the children receive the effect. It's almost like the children are eating the sour grapes themselves, is what it's saying. Why are you saying the children are eating sour grapes, but it's really the father who's eating sour grapes? And then he says... As I live, says the Lord God, you should no longer use this proverb in Israel. So God doesn't like this proverb. He doesn't want them to use it anymore. And then it says down in verse 14, talking about a, a, a man, If a man begets a son who sees all the sin which his father has done, and considers it but does not do likewise who hath not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the isles of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, not robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who was, has with, withdrawn his hand from the poor, and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father... As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, did not do what was good among his people. Behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yeah. So, Kerry, that, that's like when people say it's generational curses. Well, it's just passed down to... Right, there can be a generational curses like the effect or consequence of someone's sin. It doesn't make you a sinner. If my father was an alcoholic and a womanizer, he might pass on to me through, through nurture, but not through nature, but through nurture, through my, his example. Or the consequence of a sin, like my parents being divorced. That can be passed on to me. I don't have a father around very much. That's just, it's not what happened with my father, just an example. You know, so if, or, but like, a, like the uh, drug example. If you're, if you're born, you're going to have the consequence of your parents' drug addiction. You get be born a crack addict, as a baby. But that doesn't make you a sinner yourself. You're not guilty for the sins of your father. But the, the, the generational curses, if you'll notice, only goes to the fourth generation. This means there must be some kind of nurture influence, or some kind of DNA influence. Usually after four, four uh, generations, the DNA, if it started four generations ago, it kind of goes away and goes back to normal. Or also, you know, you think about your great-grandfather, who's four generations away, usually you don't know your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather, who's five generations away, so he can't have any effect on you. Okay, so that's what a generational curse is. But then it says in verse 19, Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and wise, has kept all my statutes and observed them. And he shall surely live. The soul who sins... Shall die, a son shall not bear the guilt of his father, nor the father bear the guilt of his son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Yeah, you can't get any clearer than that. I probably should have put that in my message, but... You want to
1: Oh, yeah, well, there's a few scriptures that we were looking for. Yeah, well,
0: the, I want to say something about Jesse's book here. The Fall of Mankind is a good book. To, if you don't have that booklet, I would encourage you to get it. And In fact, there's two booklet series there for 10 bucks for both of them, I think it is. But it, it really is thoroughly goes through this. It's really hard to get through this team one message. And it's, it's, I mean, I think I maybe spoke for like an hour and a half already, and it's, it's hard to even get through it all in an hour and a half. It takes like three or four hours. So go ahead, Jesse. Well, I was
1: just going to say, John, you can get it in the back of is not hereditary, Deuteronomy, Kings, Chronicles, and is in the back. And the other thing I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, you have in Jeremiah, Isaiah, and the Psalms, where it says that it's God who formed us in the womb. Right. And it says that we're wonderfully made, not not sinfully made, but wonderfully and fearfully made. Right. And so if, if our nature is in and of itself sinful, and God is the author of our nature, then God is the author of what is sinful. Right. But if you make a distinction between the, you know, the ethical or metaphysical, between the physical and the moral, that, that you know, physical depravity and moral depravity, right. well, then we understand God is the author of even the, the physical depravity that we inherit. God, God, God is the one who causes a child to be born a handicapped. Mm-hmm. You know, God does visit the iniquities upon the children. Right. Uh, he doesn't necessarily do that as punishment, right. but He has complete control over the physical world. Right. And so, while, while God is the author of the body we're born with, the nature we're born with, it's not sinful in and of itself. Right. In fact, uh, most of the most of our nature, you have the appetites of our our body, which have a good way to be gratified. The, your desire for food, your desire for wisdom, these things are good, and you can pursue a gratification which is good, or you can pursue a gratification which isn't good. Right, and so. Um, You know, while God is the author of, you know, physical depravity and our physical nature and our our nature itself, we are the author of our own moral depravity. It's out of our own heart that comes sin, the Bible says. You know, out of a man's heart. And a good tree out of a, uh, you know, good tree gives good fruit and so on and so forth.
0: Right. Yeah, Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, which Jesse was talking about there, when he's talking about how we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Does God fearfully and wonderfully make sin? No, He doesn't. He makes people. And like I said, we, we can't choose how we're born, You know, what skin color, what hair color, what eye color, what the parents we're born to, what state or country we're born into. We can't choose those things. God does those things. But God doesn't make sinners, because God hates sin. No, He gave us the free will. Yeah, He gave us free will to choose. So. image, too. Yeah, he messing in his image. But that's good that Jesse made a distinction between moral depravity and physical depravity. Physical depravity is just the flesh, the desires of the flesh. And you can fulfill those, those desires unlawfully. Yeah. Like if I have a desire to drink, everyone has a desire to drink, drink you know, drink water, but I could use that to drink beer. And and if I got drunk, that'd be unlawfully. Okay? Everyone has a desire to eat. You know, but if I went out and ate garbage and and, and, and dung all day, that wouldn't be good for me. Okay? A glutton. Huh? A glutton. Yeah, you can become a glutton. Okay, and there's you know, different other desires we all have, that especially us adults have, different desires that children don't have yet, that we can gratify in sinful ways. You can go look up and down Bragg Boulevard and see people gratifying some of their desires of their flesh in unlawful ways, in sinful ways. But do they have to do those things? Does God make them that way to do those things? No. Yeah. Of course not.
1: And the distinction between sin and temptation is- well, physical depravity or even just your natural appetites, those are temptation. Right? Eve was tempted when she saw the tree was good for food, and that was a God given appetite, but that was a source of temptation uh, because there was a way she could gratify it lawfully or right. unlawfully. It says in James, Every man is tempted by his own lust, mm-hmm. and even as so Jesus made it the same flesh and blood we're made of, and was tempted in all points, yet without sin. So, again, you see a distinction between the sin and the temptation. So the, the, the physical depravity and the natural appetites are temptation but the moral depravity is the sin which is right. the unlawful gratification of those or a commitment of your will you know to a selfish life right. skip.